Impact Alpha, this is Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the fintech company Liquinet, coming to you live on tape from New York City. Here with me is Imogen Rose Smith, a fellow with the University of California. Good to be with you, Imogen. Good to be with you, Brian. I love having you in the office. It's really fun. <laughs> Uh, and joining us uh, from Impact Alpha's world headquarters in the San Francisco Bay Area is David Bank, the one and only editor and CEO of Impact Alpha. Hello, David. Hey, Brian. How are you? Hey, Imogen. <laughs> Hi, David. Hi, David. Okay, so on today's show, we're going to be talking about risky business. No, not that Tom Cruise movie from the 80s. Well, that's not the only thing we're going to talk about. Maybe we'll get to that later. But the risk that companies face from climate change and other urgent challenges. For example, Bank of America worries about increased mortgage defaults from flooded homeowners following more powerful storms. Disney worries that its theme parks may become too hot for vacationers. AT&T worries that hurricanes and wildfires may knock out its cell towers. And Coca-Cola worries that there won't be enough water to make Coke. These examples come from CDP, the UK organization formerly known as the Carbon Disclosure Project, that asks companies to report their environmental impact, including the risks and opportunities they believe climate change presents for their businesses. Many of the largest businesses agree that there are inherent climate-related risks with potential to have a substantial financial or strategic impact on their ability to operate. So we know that these companies are more aware of their social and environmental challenges. So Imogen, the question is, are these companies therefore taking sufficient action to act on this awareness? Not for the most part, right? There is a difference between recognizing the abstract notions of what climate change could mean for your business and actually proactively acting on that at the scale that is necessary. And I think that the, the disconnect for a lot of corporations is between those two things. So, for example, Coca-Cola has been grappling with this water issue forever. Um, they're well aware of the challenges that come from being a company that is largely dependent on water. Does that mean that, that they are responding in the scale that we know is sort of globally necessary to address the water challenges? Absolutely not. Does that mean that there is not a long-term risk to Coke's business? No. And this isn't to say that they are somehow failing in their, their duty, right? That they're doing their job by, by recognizing the challenges. There's only so much that they can do to, do to address those. So the, the problems to a certain extent lie with the corporations, but the bigger problems really probably lie with investors and in the capital markets and the ability to give companies... The, the the leeway that they need to address these often still sort of existential risks that exist a long way down the road. So you think that the companies are aware of these problems, but that their investors are holding them back by not allowing them to invest for these long-term solutions, but instead rewarding them or punishing them based on their own short-term performance targets. Exactly. And I think, you know, again, you don't need to you don't need to get into like, you know, the environment or ESG to talk about just just think about the subprime mortgage crisis. Right. It's not like people didn't realize there were problems or didn't realize there was a risk. It's that, you know, while the music pl is playing, exactly, we have to dance. We have to dance. It's exactly the problem. Well, David, instead of instead of retreading this debate about short term versus long term incentives that uh, investors put onto companies, perhaps risk might be the way that companies take action. So, do you do you see that as a possibility? Will risk 
become the driver of impact for companies? Well, Brian, on a recent ROI podcast, we talked about this is the being the year that climate risk hits the market. We also talked about how this is the year companies operationalize impact. And what I think is going to happen is that some of these, as Imogen said, existential risk, but you know, possibly long-term, possibly somewhat abstract, become much more concrete. And they become concrete not because anybody, you know, you know, decides they want to, you know, care about it necessarily, but they become more concrete because, you know, insurance premiums rise or, um, you know, other costs come into play that, um, you know, supply chain disruptions mean that you can't, you know, you can't get the materials for your food distribution business or conversely that, you know, the company that actually thought about, you know, water conservation now, now out competes the one that is wasting water. So, so these things become real business concerns and they Therefore, you know, C-suite and CEO level concerns. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we've, we've often talked about um, at Impact Alpha is that much of what we would think of as impact investing, you know, actually happens kind of behind the scenes in corporate investments, in corporate initiatives around these kinds of things. So somebody's in charge of making sure that Coke has enough water. As Imogen said, you know, they may not take the fully comprehensive view on, on it, um, you know, that that's going to save the world for everybody else. But it's somebody's business to make sure that that bottling plant has a water supply. And so as those kinds of concerns become just much more central business concerns, the investment that comes through corporate investment into things that we would all call impact investing, I think is really something to watch. So um, yes, risk is driving companies to pay more attention to things that we would call um, impact, you know, and impact investments. So, and David, we, we often talk about the opportunity uh, to generate outperformance by taking an impact lens to your investments. That's why you named the company uh, Impact Alpha. Uh, but uh, are you saying that instead of being driven by opportunity, that maybe for these companies, fear might be a stronger driver to take action? Fear is always a motivator, a stronger motivator. I mean, for investors as well as you know, for corporate managers and whatnot. I mean, you know, not suffering a big loss is a career, you know, uh, insurance. So um, uh, I think risk this year, you know, is 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 the big topic. So Imogen, do you agree? Do you think that uh, what what is a stronger driver of impact, uh, the carrot or the stick? <laughs> Is it a carrot or is it a stick? I think that, yes, clearly fear is a good driver. Clearly risks, you know, companies respond to risks. We know that, that, that risks bring change. It's clear that like, you know, there was a lot of risk in the markets full stop right now. But do people do sort of their, their best work in disasters? Does innovation come out of, you know, the worst case scenarios? Is history, necessity the mother of invention? Yeah, well, history suggests not, right? That, like, again, look at PG&E, right? PG&E was saying, hey, guys, this is going to be a problem. We need to, you know, we're going to be in problems. The fires, are going to, the California fires are going to be an issue for us. The markets didn't care. There's not much PG&E was doing about it. And lo and behold, now they're flirting with bankruptcy, right? So, So it's not... Yeah, I don't think that fear itself is. And then again, in times of what you see in times of down markets is you see a lot of companies and investors pull away from innovation, right? You see them retrench 
into a place of safety. And it's not clear that that's necessarily going to be the best result for impact. But it's Darwinian at some level, right? I mean, some companies will have prepared better and then the proverbial shit will hit the fan and they will and they will be rewarded at some level for having some preparation for these events with some other company will be washed out by. So you never know exactly how that's going to sort out until it until it happens. But the fact that the, that they took steps now will bear them in good stead later. And the question is how to encourage them to take those the, those good steps. Um, uh, and, you know, what are the market signals that would that would drive, uh, you know, resources to those good steps? But that does assume that, again, we have complete information about what the risks are going to be and how they're going to manifest themselves. Right? Are good actors always rewarded? You know, and, and what what are what are companies preparing for? Right? Again, it's not it's not necessarily the stranded asset risk that's gonna kill you, it's the forest fires, right? So who needs to be educated to figure that out? Is that what the companies are working on? You know, do the capital market participants need to be better informed to recognize the, the good actors who are working on the right problems. Well, David, do you have examples of market signals for how things actually do get priced in? Well, I mean, the obvious one is is price on carbon, right? Which is, a, you know, everybody's favorite example of a, of a market. Uh, what is it? The dog that didn't bark or something. The market signal that we don't have, right? So um, you talk about companies having to somehow account internally for what those risks are. One way is to actually be very aware of their um, the, the, the price on carbon. I mean, the other is these risks that don't come from your own carbon um, emissions, but come from everybody else's carbon emissions. Um, and that's those are a little harder to figure, but those come through in you know what we've been talking about on this podcast before through ESG reports and these kinds of reports that you mentioned from, from CDP. Um, companies need to account, you know, in the way that they account for other risks. They account for, you know, they have very good models for accounting for currency risk or interest rate risk or or, or other kinds of risks. So it's really not that far-fetched for them to figure out the mechanism for account for these kind of risks. By the way, models who account for risks is one of my favorite hashtags to follow on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> Imogen is laughing despite her best efforts right now. <laughs> um. Imogen, do you think the market accurately prices risk of catastrophic climate change and these other social you know, upheavals and everything else that we are worried about through impact investing? Do you think that enough market participants are as worried as they should be? Um, and if not, what would it look like to you if more market participants were appropriately worried? You always give me the easy questions. Yes. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Like, obviously, the markets are not accurately pricing the risk associated with a catastrophic incident from climate change. But on the other hand, you know, it's kind of the same thing of like, you can be too early to a trade as you can be too late to a trade, right? Like, what do you want the markets to do? Do you want them to like be, be paralyzed, again, by a risk that has yet to manifest itself that's it that's not how risk works right and this is why markets operate the way they do and so you know we still have this scenario whereby we are much more impacted by the short to medium term than we are the long term and you you can't spend your entire life planning for something that is over the horizon so the obvious example is you know 
a lot of the climate change activists like to you know point out that if you had divested from Exxon, I know whatever it is like three years ago, you would have made tons of money because the price of Exxon was, you know had gone down over that time period. That has nothing to do with stranded asset risk. That has everything to do with the price of oil, and that has everything to do with current geopolitical risks. So you know, and again, it's 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 not. It's not a one-dimensional conversation, right? There, there are all these other factors that come into to being. So we might like it to be purely about ESG or purely about climate risk. You know, there's a whole bunch of other factors that have to be brought into consideration. And... <laughs> <laughs> You know, these are these are these are sort of known unknowns, right? Like part of the part of the problem here and why capital markets struggle with this is that we're talking about shifting an economy from a fossil fuel economy to a clean and renewable energy economy, which means, you know, we're not we're not talking about a cyclical change, we're talking about a paradigm change into sort of, you know, going somewhere we've never been before. And Models which are by nature backwards looking have a huge problem managing that or accounting for that. So, David, who do you think are going to be the ones to succeed in this new environment? Who is appropriately understanding risk, but not retreating out of fear, but using their awareness of the changing landscape and the changing market conditions to find those opportunities? Well, I'm going to dodge the question by not actually saying who is doing it right, but just saying what the process by which we find out who's doing it right. And I think the, you know, whether you call it the Silicon Valley, you know, tech model or whether you call it the impact investing entrepreneurship model, you know, there's a lot of startups that are working these angles. And for every huge challenge facing the world it's a huge opportunity facing you know innovative startups and so um, the entrepreneurs are figuring out how to address different challenges and, and in very granular you know kinds of ways with you know a better irrigation system a better you know energy capture system or better better energy storage all these kinds of things we've been we've been writing about for a while here then the next question how does that filter up into you know bigger corporate or or bigger bigger scale. And, you know, one of the things we've been watching is corporate venture capital being a strategic investor for some of these very startups as the companies try to hedge their own bet and lay down ways of getting ahead of these things. So I think the rosy view is that, every, you know, is that this this opens up huge opportunities for innovation and and, and, and entrepreneurship. I, I'm, I'm not fully sold on your sort of very Californian vision that Silicon Valley is going to, to somehow um, innovate and don't put words in my mouth. Into... <laughs> I didn't say. I said. But I know. I, was, I said I was... Silicon Valley model. I didn't necessarily say Silicon Cause... Valley. Because <laughs> that's working out really great for us right now. Um, but I do. My how the mighty do... have fallen. <laughs> I do agree with you um, that corporate entrepreneurship and corporate innovation actually has the potential to be a very, you know, an important component of impact capital and a good ally for impact investing. Um, and I think, you know, I think you're, 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 you're really beginning to see that. And I think that that is something that is sort of often overlooked 
in the sort of the broader impact conversation. Um, the the flip side to that, though, is, you know, going back to what I was saying previously about the sort of short termism of the marketplace and the extent to which investors are willing to support companies putting enough money into R&D to help them be the leaders of change. And again, what you've seen often is that investors will punish companies for doing that and instead would rather they, you know, return money to their own pockets. Well, that, I mean, that, that, I think that's exactly, you know, that's exactly the, the, the fulcrum that we're on right now because, you know, there's been a lot of talk, obviously, about the extent of share buybacks, particularly since the tax cut um, and companies saying, you know, they don't have, or at least implicitly saying they don't have better places to put their their money. And then what we're saying on this on this podcast is, hey, there's plenty of good places to put money as you prepare for the challenges of the future and the opportunities of the future. And so if we can start to see money shifting from purely, you know, sort of financialization, you know, whether that's share buybacks or other things, and into real investments that tackle real challenges. And I would go so far as to say, just to tie back to our earlier conversation about ESG, that how companies use their cash in this contest is exactly an ESG issue. Um, it, you know, it's, just, it's a sign of how, how, how seriously they're taking these things. Well, that's going to do it for this risky business episode of Returns on Investment. Thank you so much, David Bank. Thank you. And thank you, Imogen Rose Smith. Thank you, Brian. And thanks, as always, to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. This podcast has been a production of Impact Alpha, providing news and insights for those working to build an inclusive and prosperous future. Find us at impactalpha.com and on Twitter at impactalpha. Also, we want to hear from you. Add your two cents on the Impact Alpha Slack channel, which is exclusive for Impact Alpha subscribers. If you like this podcast, consider telling just two other people about it. You can also leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts. If you don't like the podcast, maybe keep it to yourself. Just kidding. We love your feedback. Drop us an email at editor at impactalpha.com. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you in some sense of the word next time.